0: If you had to pick one television sitcom to most accurately convey the essence of culture in 1990s America, what would it be? And everyone under 30 in the room is like, I have no idea. But Archie Bunker. Friends, okay. Seinfeld. Seinfeld, what? Welcome back? I don't I remember that. Not too far back. Yeah, we're talking 90s here. Dino, oh man, I love that show. We're like dinosaur kindred spirits. Yeah, the, not the mama, not the mama, and hitting with the, the pan over the head. Yeah, I love that show. What happened? 90210? Is that, I don't know what you were watching in the 90s. <laughs> yeah. If anybody says Baywatch, you need to check your heart, okay? All right? Those sins have been, but let's just, yeah. All right, anybody else have any, what, what are some shows that encapsulate 1990s America? Brian. Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. It's full house. Third Rock, Full House. Oh man. What was the one with Steve Urkel? Family Matters. Family Matters. Oh man. Little House on the Prairie. On the Prairie. Oh, I don't know. That's gonna. That's, that's like 1800s, maybe. It came out in the 90s, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman. Yeah, that was my first love of my life. There, Doctor Quinn. Um, Alf? I heard Alf. Okay. Walker, Texas Ranger. Ranger. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Chuck Norris. Anybody else? Science Science fiction. Star Trek? Yeah, that would not encapsulate American culture, right? That's in outer space. Anything else? I see your hand. What? Home Improvement with Tim Allen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. America's Funniest Home Videos might take the prize. Yeah. 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 My son and my daughter would say um, Barney. Barney, interesting, yeah. I don't know what I would think of Americans if I watched Barney, that was all, that's all I got. Yeah. Andy Griffith, Andy Griffith. okay. Now let's, let's pause a second. These are great recommendations. Andy Griffith, although might be in the 50s and 60s. But let's pause a second. Let's pause. Your, 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 let's say, let's put you in a underground bunker. And you have been living, your family's been living there for 100 years, generation after generation after generation. And you find a time capsule from the 1990s that we in this room have created. This person's about to emerge from the bunker and experience American culture for the first time in their life. Or experience, they wanna they want experience a taste of what the 1990s was like. What, what one show, what one show are we gonna put in that time capsule from the 1990s? Full House. Full House. Simpsons. Everybody loves Raymond. The six o'clock News. What do you see, uh, how difficult of a task this is? Every show, it sometimes is theatrical in its nature. It's exaggerated, it's over-the-top, it's a little bit goofy, or it's, you know, sci-fi, it's whatever. And not one show perfectly captures the essence of American culture, right? It's a very difficult thing to do. What we need is kind of a smathering of all these different shows, and even then, we don't have a very accurate representation of American culture in the 90s. You have what these TV production companies think it was like, or think what might entertain you more so than an accurate representation of the show. That challenge exists as well when we study the Book of Acts, because there's a lot of dynamic culture going on in the first century. As we read the Book of Acts, we have to remember to intertwine and interweave this culture and have a cognizant of what was going on in the first century. And I keep trying to emphasize this because it's so important. Otherwise you miss so much of what's going on in the book of Acts and you gloss over so much. One of the big things floating around in Jewish culture in the first century was the concept of the olam Habah. How many of you have ever heard of the olam Habah? Anybody know what that translates to? Yeah, the end of days, so the age. The, Habba means the coming. Olam means the age. Olam literally means, on a literal level, the horizon. And you can never reach the end of the horizon, so to speak, but it's like the next age. Okay? It's, it's the next era. Okay? The world to come, as it's often translated. All right, This is a big concept in Jewish eschatology. Eschatology is like the study of the end times. Okay? What was it going to look like And what will it be like? And who will be there? Those are big questions that Jewish scholars and theologians grappled with in the first century up until today. Just like we grapple with that in American Christianity and dominational Christianity, there is no consensus on what is a salvific issue, how do you get saved, who who will be in the rapture, is there a rapture? Is it post, pre, mid, whatever? There's all kinds of opinions and, and assessments on that. The same was true in the first century within the Jewish world. So what is the Olam Haba? Let's take all these disagreements out and put a, a kind of a cohesive picture of the Olam Haba together. And Lily, could I have you turn the front lights off for me up there since you're closest to it? Thank you. Not the projector switch, the light switch, okay? That would be. So what is the Olam Haba? Thank you. It's an era of Israeli sovereignty. Okay, picture that. Meaning the people of Israel are in their land and they're not, they're not uh, dominated by a foreign country or nation or army. It's ushered in with the advent of Messiah. It's a time of resurrection and judgment. It's the establishment of the messianic Davidic monarchy. It's a future gold in the age for, a world, for the world with justice and righteousness emanating from Israel and emanating from the Torah. Remember Isaiah 2, we actually just prayed, Isaiah 2, for from Zion will go forth the Torah and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's that's Olam Haba language that you prayed. That's what we're wishing for. That's what we're saying. We're saying please bring the Olam Haba. The Olam Haba makes it into the writings in the New Testament and one of those being Matthew 12, 32. Yeshua says and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the Olam Haba. So it gives you a window into Yeshua's understanding of the Olam Haba. But there's this age, the Olam Haze, the Olam Haba, the age to come. There's more. Mark 10.30. Yeshua says, Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions? and in the age to come, eternal life. All right? So in other words, what he's saying is if you lose all that because of persecution in this age, in the olam hazeh, you'll get it back even more in the olam haba, eternal life. Right? You see how it's, it's, it's part of Yeshua's understanding of the olam haba. It's part of, and therefore trickles out to the, the apostles in the first century sect of the way. They had this dichotomy of olam hazeh haba. Okay? Here's another one from Hebrews chapter 6. The writer of Hebrews says, Or it is, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened to have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Okay? You see the dichotomy, and there's many more instances of this in the, in the New Testament, the B'rik Kharashah, of this dichotomy being drawn between the Olam Haze, the Olam Haba. It's even made it into ancient uh, Christian creeds, like the Nicene Creed in 325. The Nicene Creed goes, if you ever went to like a Lutheran church, Presbyterian, maybe some Methodist churches, uh, Catholic churches, some of the higher church, Episcopal, higher denominational Christian churches, they would say the Nicene Creed. And part of the Nicene Creed composed in 325 says, I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the olam haba. Okay? You see how that's kind of developing here. That's something that is um, on the minds and the theology, no doubt, of first century Judaism's. Um, and here's another question that comes into play. And this is a big question that's going to uh, be answered here in the next two chapters as we cover the book of Acts do non-Jews or Gentiles, do they have a place in the world to come? And if so, what do they have to do to get there? How do they earn it? Well, what do we assume about Gentiles? Let's, let's say we're an ancient uh, Jewish sage living in the first century. A Gentile is going to 100% of the time be an idolater. There is no such thing as atheism yet. That's a very new concept, okay? That there is no God, that this is all from biological evolution or whatever. That's very new in the grand scheme of things. A Gentile picked a God or gods and worshipped them how those gods wanted to be worshipped. Okay? A Gentile was an idolater. However, they developed in in the first century another class of Gentiles called the phobomenos in Greek. And those are the God-fearers. They had a phobo of God. Okay? They were what we call righteous Gentiles. They're often called righteous Gentiles in the, uh, in the New Testament. And they are people who left their life of idolatry and began to embrace the Torah lifestyle to a certain extent. How much so? We don't know exactly. But they began to embrace certain commandments of the Torah that, that were um, in alignment with the Jewish faith at that time. So, yeah, I see a question. No. By and large, Jewish eschatology, when it refers to the Olam Haba, is talking about a literal physical existence on this world. Yeah, yeah. And I would say the bulk of, of the Bible, when it speaks about your, like we just prayed the the Lord's Prayer, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, where on earth as it is in heaven. Um, a lot of eschatology is actually geocentric. It's very the earth, the earth is the future. The earth and the renewed earth, um, and God's reign once again on earth. And you got to remember that was His intention in the garden was to create us on earth to dwell with Him on earth, and He's basically working us back to that point. So, good question, though. And guys, for those who are visitors today, we—I'm a school teacher at heart. Like that's, that's what I—I went to educate. I went to school to do is to be a school teacher. Um, this is a classroom. It's not a church where you can't talk to me. I like that interaction. So. Um, like Brenda just did, shoot your hand up if you have a question or comment, and I'll, if I have the time, I'll answer that for you, or do my best to at least. So, if God-fearing righteous Gentiles do have a place in the Olam Haba, like we said, if they do, okay, fine. What do they have to do to get there? Remember, we saw it prior in the Book of Acts that the Holy Spirit is being poured out on believers. They're speaking in these glosses, right? These like other languages. They're they're ha- they're experiencing the supernatural realm. The only people that have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit have experienced. And they're Gentiles. So therefore they must have some kind of part in this prophetic plan of restoring the kingdom of God. What is that? They must have a share in the age to come. What is that and how do they get there? And that's going to be a big plaguing question that will even make its way into our movement here in the next two chapters that we're gonna try to work up and answer using these two chapters. But do you think there was a consensus on this? Do you think there was a hundred percent agreement that yeah gentiles have a place in the world to come here's what they have to do to get there no no absolutely not absolutely not we're going to see that even begin to divide the first century sect known as the way our movement within its first 14 to 15 years is going to be divided on this issue to a certain extent but we got to remember that on the prophetic expectations Some of the the prophetic expectations in the first century were verses like this from Zechariah chapter 8 verses 20 through 22. Thus says the Lord of hosts, peoples shall come, shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities, the inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us go up at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. And to entreat the favor of the Lord. Do you hear the Olam Haba language there? Nations streaming up to Jerusalem. Here's verse 23. It says, "Kol Amar Adonai Sevaot Bayamim HaHima." So it says, "In those days, the Lord of Hosts, in those days, Asher Yachaziku that it will be with great strength, Asura Ten Anoshim Min." Miko ten men from every language and Hagoyim, in every nation, Veha will will tightly will tightly grab Bikanaf, the, the corner or the fringe, Ish of, Yahudi of, of a Jewish male. So in those days, let's back up in those days. 10 men from every language and from every nation will grab the corner of a Jew. Lemor, and they will say, Nalka imachem. So like, uh, take me with you. (laughs) Take me with your people. Ki shema enu. So like, I have heard, I have shemad Elohim imachem. Elohim is with you and your people. Elohim is with your people. They sound like the olah, olam haba. That is, that is what's going on in the minds of the Jewish sages in the first century. That at some point, we don't know what it will look like, but 10 people from every nation and every tongue will gather around a Jew, a Jewish male, grab the, the cloak, grab the corner of his garments, and they will say, take me with you because we see the Lord is with you. Right? That's what they're expecting. How that all plays out, we don't know. We don't know yet. But the the Holy Spirit is is still pouring out on these people in in a very indistinct way. Also going on in the culture of Asia Minor. And because all these events are happening in Asia Minor, we have to know, like I said, there's no such thing as atheists in the first century in Asia Minor. They're going to worship a god or gods. And it's important that we know that and be familiar with that to a certain extent. Now I'm going to spare you taking you back to like your 10th grade Greek mythology, unit or whatever with your teacher that you've, you probably slept through like I did, but of course we've got Zeus, right? Zeus is the chief of Greek, Greek mythology. He was born in a cave. He ascends into the heavens. He becomes the god of the skies. And because he's the god of the skies, guess what? Zeus gets to control the weather and provide rain for mortals. He was thought of the giver of food and the provider of all because of that. However, Zeus was very capricious and often communicated his displeasure with bolts of lightning. (laughs) Maybe that's where we get like, oh, I'm going to get away from you, you're going to get struck by lightning. (laughs) That's Zeus. Zeus was kind of unpredictable in his nature. He seemed grumpy at times and happy at others, but he was the provider of all. And so naturally, if you worship Zeus, which if you're a first century Hellenistic Roman, I hope you do worship Zeus, he's the chief of all gods, you would go to the temple on a regular basis, which every major city had a temple to Zeus right outside its city gates, and you would offer a sacrifice to it. You would give up part of your livelihood to Zeus so that Zeus would show you favor and provide rain on your land and on your fields. Another god that was on the the radar of every first century Hellenistic Roman, was the god of Hermes. Many of you have heard of Hermes. Hermes is where we get the term hermeneutics. It's the ability to interpret and to teach. All right? Hermes is the god that's associated with bridging the gap between life and death. He guards the road between the living and the dead, the upper world and the lower world, which we call Hades. He's the messenger of the gods. He had the gift of oration. He's the mouthpiece of the gods. Many people in the first century would place, in ancient times, they placed in front uh, of their household a, sim- uh, a, like a bust, like we see here, of Hermes, which was a, shown as like a symbol of fertility and youth. Hermes carried a staff with him and many of the, the depictions you see of him, though there's, there isn't a staff in these depictions. Hermes carried a staff and it was this staff right here. It was a winged staff with snakes coiled around it. And Within this staff, it's thought that it had healing qualities, the supernatural ability to heal people who had ailments. Hermes was connected with healing, but he was also connected with bringing a message from the gods. And there's a legend that goes that there was a, uh, there was a plague uh, that was inflicting this, this little village in Asia Minor somewhere, if I'm not mistaken, Asia Minor. And Hermes comes down and he wants to intervene in this plague. Well, he sacrifices a sheep, but before he does so, he takes the sheep and puts it on his shoulders and he walks a circuit around the village and then sacrifices it, thus saving the village and healing the village. The story goes that once upon a time, the king of the gods, Zeus, and Hermes, they came disguised as ordinary peasants and began asking the people of the town for a place to sleep that night. They had been rejected by all. So wicked were the people of that land that at la- when at last they came to Bassus and Philemon's simple, rustic cottage, though the couple was poor, their generosity far surpassed that of their rich neighbors, among whom the gods found the doors to be bolted and no words of kindness. After serving the two guests food and wine, Basis noted that although she had refilled her guests' beechwood cups many times, the pitcher was still full, which is where they get the phrase Hermes pitcher. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Realizing that her guests were gods, she and her husband raised their hands in supplication and implored indulgence for their simple home and fare. Philemon thought of catching and killing the goose that guarded their house and making it into a meal. But when he went to do so, the goose ran to safety and climbed into Zeus's lap. Zeus said, they need not slay the goose and that they should leave the town. This was because he was going to destroy the town and all those who had turned them away and not provided due hospitality. He told Bostas and Philemon to climb the mountain with him and Hermes and not to turn back until they reached the top. After climbing the summit, Bostas and Philemon looked back on their town and saw that it had been destroyed by a flood and that Zeus had turned their cottage into an ornate temple. The couple's wish to be guardians of the temple was granted. They also asked that when time came for one of them to die, that they would die together. Upon their death, the couple were changed into an intertwining pair of trees, one oak and one linden, standing in the deserted, boggy terrain. So this is going on, and these stories and these legends and folklore are going on in the first century Greco-Roman world. For sure. and As we read and delve into Acts 14, I hope I've better prepared you. Oh, this is just a painting of that story I just read. I hope I've better prepared you for the historical context and cultural context of where the events we're about to read in Acts chapter 14. If you have a Bible, open to Acts 14. I hope you read this beforehand this week. Acts 14 verse 1, and I'm going to be commenting as we read here. And we're still we're, we're wrapping up Paul's first of three missionary journeys that he's going to take. He embarked out of Antioch right here. Jerusalem is way up here. You see what I did there? And he's sailed west, then he sailed north, and now he's kind of making a circuit. And we're going to pick up here between Iconium and Perga, Iconium and, and Lystra. In Iconium, the same thing happened. What happened, you know, so we go back to like verse 50 of the prior chapter. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the women god of high social standing, the leading men of the city. They organized persecution against Saul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. So in Iconium, the same thing happened, verse 1. They went into the synagogue and spoke in such a way that a large number of both Jews and Greeks came to trust. But the Jews who could not be persuaded, they stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds. Be careful, guys, of anyone who wants to poison your mind of a fellow believer, a brother or sister in Messiah. Be careful of that. Run away from that poison. Therefore, Paul and Barnaba remained for a long time. Now, if I were Paul and Barnaba, I'd be like, okay, fine, I'm going to write you off. I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to shake the dust off my feet. But what happens here, because they are having some progress in sharing the gospel, and people are beginning to accept the message This says they stay there for a long time, despite all this. And they began to speak boldly about the Lord, who bore witness to the message about his love and kindness and by enabling them to perform signs and miracles. However, the people of the city were divided. And that'll happen, guys. When you share the gospel, when you share the message, the Logos, the Bessorah in Hebrew, when you share that with people and it's unadulterated, truthful gospel, it will divide people some sided with the unbelieving jews other with the apostolos the apostles so it's interesting here that luke calls paul and barnaba barnabas apostles doesn't he eventually the unbelieving the unbelievers both jews and gentiles together with their leaders made a move to mistreat the apostolos the apostles even to stone them but they learned of it and they escaped to lystra and derby towns in laconia which, by the way, there have been no ancient synagogues found in this town, or in these towns. There is not a Jewish population, a significant Jewish population in these towns. And to the surrounding country, where they continued evangelizing. Now the Greek word there is, is, is it's the, the euangelion. They're, they're euangelioning people. Okay, they're evangelizing people. Verse 8. Now there was a man living in Lystra who could not use his feet. Sound familiar? He was crippled from birth. He had never walked. This man listened to Paul speak. And Paul, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they began to shout in Lyconian language. Let's pause right there. So we got the events, right? Paul's walking up to the city. There's a man there from birth who is lame. Paul looks intently at, at him. And then he says with a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And the man begins to walk and the crowds see him. Now go to Acts chapter 3. Almost the same exact events happen in Acts 3, but with different people. Acts 3. One afternoon at 3 o'clock, the hour of the Minka prayers, as Peter and John were going up to the temple, a crippled man since birth was being carried in. Every day the people used to put him at the beautiful gate of the temple so that he could beg from those going to the temple court. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money, but they stared straight at him. You see the similarity? They stared straight at him. And Peter said, look at us. The crippled man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, I don't have silver and I don't have gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Messiah Yeshua of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. And then it says he stood up and he walked, and then the people in the temple court saw him again praising God. So why is Luke making it, making it a point to draw such similarities between these two healing accounts? Why is Luke doing that? Because Luke knows that at some point, people are going to come along, and they're going to challenge Paul's credentials. They're going to say that, no, Paul is not an apostle. He did not walk with one of the twelve. He didn't do that. He isn't qualified to lead this. He's not qualified to teach that. People still do that to this day. But here Luke is saying, you know what? Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they are not only am I going to call them apostles, but they're going to heal in a way just like Peter and John, the beloved two disciples healed in Acts chapter 3. In other words, Luke is saving for us the credentials of Paul and Barnabas. So we get to where the the people are shouting and they begin to shout in the Lyconian language. They said this, the gods have come down to us in the form of men. Wait, wasn't there a legend, an ancient legend about the gods doing that? And, And did it go well with the people? No, they didn't show the gods Zeus and Hermes hospitality, did they? The gods have come down to us in the form of men. So they began calling Barnaba Zeus. And they called Paul Hermes because he did all the talking. Remember, Hermes was the messenger. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, he brought bulls and wreaths to the city, intending to offer sacrifices to them with, with the people. In other words, they don't want to repeat the mistake from the ancient folklore that they grew up hearing all their lives. So when the apostles, Barnaba and Saul, heard of it, they tore their clothes in mourning. Uh, I'm sorry, tore their clothes and ran into the crowd shouting, men, why are you doing this? We're just men, humans like you, but we're announcing the euangelion, the good news to you. Turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. In times past, he allowed peoples to walk in their own ways, Paul says, yet he did not leave himself without evidence of his nature because... Now, what Paul's about to do is to draw off of the nature of Zeus in his effort to teach these people about the living, true God. Here he goes, because he does good things, he gives you rain from heaven and crops in their season, filling you with food in your hearts and with happiness. You see what he did there? He's taking their understanding of the chief God, Zeus, and saying, no, you've got it wrong. It's the God of heaven. It's the God of Israel. Verse 19, then some unbelieving Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Uh Uh-oh, they followed them. They won over the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking that he was dead. But as the disciples gathered around him, he got up and he skipped town. And what did he do? He went back into the town. The next day, he left with Barnabas for Derbe. I want to pause here, and I want to go... This is so profound to Paul in his ministry. It's going to stick with him to the rest of his life. To the point that it is going to make it into his very last pastoral epistle that he's going to write. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3 with me real fast. I want to read a bit. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. It's way back in the back a small book that Paul is writing to one of his disciples, Timothy. He's reflecting on his ministry. Starting in verse 1. He says, moreover, understand this. In the last days will come trying times. People will be self-loving. They'll love money. They'll be proud, arrogant, insulting, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, uncontrolled, brutal, hateful of good treacherous, headstrong, swollen with conceit, loving pleasure rather than God, as they retain the outer form of religion but deny its power. In other words, Paul is saying is, be careful of people who look religious but do these things. These aren't just people off the streets. Stay away from these people, for some of them worm their way into homes and get control of weak-willed women on their YouTube channels. Just kidding, doesn't say that, but it's probably true. Who are heaped with sins and swayed by various impulses, who are always learning, uh oh, but never able to come to a full knowledge of the truth. Yikes! If that's not a condemnation on the messianic movement today, I don't know what is. In the same way as Janus and Jambres opposed Moshe, so also these people oppose the truth. They are people with corrupted minds whose trust cannot pass the test. However, they won't get very far because everyone will see how stupid they are, just as happened with those two. In other words, Paul is saying, keep your head down. God will take care of it. But you, you have closely followed my teaching, conduct, uh, my conduct, purpose in life, trust, steadfastness, love, and perseverance. As well, Timothy, as the persecutions and sufferings the Lord rescued me from, all of them. And indeed, all who want to live a godly life united with Messiah Yeshua will be persecuted. Oh, this is the verse that prosperity preachers want to stay away from. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. But you, Timothy, and I would say by extension you, Dothan Messianic Fellowship, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, recalling the people from whom you learned it and recalling too how far uh, how from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which can give you the wisdom that leads to deliverance through trusting in Messiah Yeshua. Because all Scripture is God-breathed and valuable for, for the training of reproof, convicting of sin, correcting of faults, and training in right. Thus, anyone who belongs to God may be fully equipped for every good work. So there you have it. Paul is saying, I suffered a lot of stuff in my life, but that's how I, that's how I prove my testimony. That's how I prove my being in union with Messiah, right? Now I left off back in Acts chapter 14. Flip back there real quick. It says in verse 21, after proclaiming the good news in that city and making many people into disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Let's pause here because if you look at my map behind me, They're going back into hostile territory. And do they have to do that? So they're here in Derby. They make some disciples. They could just go to the closest port to the south and make it back over to Antioch or maybe go buy land over to Antioch. But they're saying, you know what? Yeah, we got, I, got, I got like stoned. I almost got killed in that city. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go back there. <laughs> I'm going to take the scenic route. That's the kind of faith that Paul had. He's willing to go into this hostile territory where he knows he's going to face more hatred and more persecution, but he knows he's not giving up hope for the Jewish population there and the Gentiles who've come to trust in Messiah. So after strengthening, verse 22, after strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith and reminding them that it is through many sowing of seeds in the pastor's ministry that we must enter the kingdom of God. No. What does it say? Hardships. Through many hardships that we must enter the kingdom of God. After appointing elders for them in every congregation. Now let's pause because what they're doing is something very good and wise and biblical. The Greek word there for elders is a presbyteros. It's where Presbyterians get their name from, okay? It's, a, it's, a, it's an aged and wise man. Paul is saying, "You are going to help lead this group. I'm going back from whence I came. You stay here. You, you continue the teaching and the discipling of what's going on and trusting you with that. OK? If you want to see a, a comprehensive list of people who, um, of, of, of qualifications to become an elder, Paul talks about this in Titus chapter one and 1 Timothy chapter three. And there's another mention in First Peter. But I'm going to give you those again. It's important you look at those. The requirements for eldership in the local assembly that Paul is laying out. Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3. Okay? So what he's saying, you've got to remember, this is remember, that's back before there was YouTube and a coaxial cable coming to your house and piping and teaching and all that stuff, right? Teaching and spiritual guidance and shepherding went through these men who were the elders, And they were entrusted with that instruction. And guess what? They took the blame if they mess up. James says, not many of you should become teachers because those who do are are judged more strictly. So this is the way our congregation is set up and led. Uh, We have elders, but we also have deacons. We have three elders. Um, who guide the spiritual direction, the teaching, and the counseling, and whatever the case may be, the non-physical attributes of, uh, um, non-physical components of this congregation are are led by three elders. We don't have one central, like, person who makes all the calls, and makes all the shots, and has all the power, and those three men are Bobby, Adrian, and myself, and we do so um, at an expense to ourselves. None of us are on salary or anything like that. This is a Something that we just love you. We love to see your spiritual development. We love to make disciples for Yeshua. We love his flock. And so we do that out of love for that. Um, But it's a good calling. And I would say if there are people in the room that um, have this apprehension towards leadership of any kind. I've been to uh, a home fellowship and developed a relationship with a a brother down in in, uh, Florida who has a home fellowship. And they, they kind of have, and many people in the Hebrew roots or Messianic movement, they have this apprehension of like, we don't want to have that what we did in the church because we got hurt by that, and that's, that we don't want to experience that again. And, and that, 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 those are valid feelings, and valid that's valid hurt. I'm not, I, I, I have been hurt by leadership in a church as well. But it doesn't mean we throw that baby out with the bathwater. Because what happens is if you have no leadership, you have what? chaos and anarchy everyone doing what is right in their own eyes and I would dare to tell you and I firmly believe this that there's no such thing as a lack of a leader whenever you get more than two humans together two, three humans or more there's a leader and in this home fellowship and this brother I've been trying to mentor and counsel with you've got humans together half a dozen to a dozen humans together guess what there's a leader The question is not whether or not there's a leader because there's a leader in that group of people and they give me about five minutes, I can find that leader. The question is whether or not they are the right leader, whether or not they're biblically ordained, whether or not they're called to be that leader, whether or not they have the anointing to be that leader, whether or not they're a shepherd that will actually lay down the sheep, lay down his life for the sheep. That's the question. And too often, we, in our apprehension, we say, well, no, we're just going to do it. We're just going to have very informal, like, just gather together, all, you know, 15 of us. And there's not going to be any leadership. Well, guess what? I'll give you about three years to make it. Maybe even less. Let's cut that in half, really. Because what's going to happen is there's going to be disagreement over doctrine. There's going to be disagreements over over money. There's going to be disagreements over all kinds of things. And there's going to be no one who will take the blame and, stand up and say, you know what? fine, I'll, t- I'll make a decision on this. No, don't do that. No, this is the truth. This is what the word says. There's no one who when you're experiencing marital hardship will pick up the phone at 11 o'clock at night and pray with you and say, yeah, I'm going to lay my life down for the sheep. And so, yeah, I, I understand the hurt and the pain and the unforgiveness and all that. And I've had to walk through that and experience that and, and come out of that. But having anarchy and everyone doing what is right in their own eyes is going to cause even more hurt. Because hurt people hurt people. Okay? Let's keep going. He's appointing elders. He's appointing these men to be leadership within the local assemblies in every congregation. And it says with prayer and with fasting. That means not eating food for those who are confused on what fasting is. Committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Verse 24, passing through Pisidia, they came down to Pamphylia. And after speaking the Logos, the message in Perga, they came down to Italia. And from there, they sailed back to Antioch, the place where they had been handed over to the care of God's work, uh, which they had now completed. So they just wrapped up their first tour, their first missionary journey into Asia Minor. And remember, Paul is hitting those places where he knows that there are Jews. He knows there are synagogues. Why? Why? Because they are waiting for the olam haba, the age to come. They're waiting for the Mashiach of Israel. They're waiting for a herald to come in and say, the king has come. We can go home. But guess what? This message is a little bit different than maybe some of them expected. The message is the king has come and he's died. And he's resurrected for the sins of the world, Jew and Gentile. And his kingdom is not yet realized on earth. But you can be members and citizens of that kingdom beforehand. Verse 27. When they arrived, they gathered with the ecclesia together and reported what God had done through them. That he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there some time with the disciples. So Luke is wrapping up chapter 14 here with a very common kind of like... Closure. He's moving on to the next chapter. And what he's saying is like they got back together. They debriefed each other. There's great joy. Um, they kind of fill each other in. And what do you experience out there, Paul and Barnabas? When you were out there on the road, what was it like? And Paul and Barnabas are filling him in. Notice Paul and Barnabas don't go into this like, oh, like so I feel sorry about myself. I got stoned. I they kicked me out of the city and they didn't want to hear anything. He's not complaining. What is he saying? That God is opening a door to faith uh, in, the, in, in the Gentiles. It's a very interesting model. I think we should try to pattern our our ministry after as well. So lessons from Acts chapter 14 I took away, and I want to hear from you guys what you took away from Acts 14 as well in a minute. Luke is telling us that Paul's office of apostleship is like that of the other 12. Did you catch that? When we proclaim the gospel, the euangelion, the besora, we should expect but not hope for division. Expect it, they'll be like, ah, oh, yeah, I expected this, but I wasn't hoping for that. But it will happen. Thirdly, the appointment of elders in a local assembly is good, and it's biblical. Okay? Number four, a familiarity with surrounding culture is essential for cross-culture evangelism. If you don't know the culture in which you're about to experience, I, you know, I go to Uganda, I've been to Uganda three times, and I, I'm gonna, probably going to continue to go back but I just started listening to this podcast about Ugandan history. And I've been three times now, I'm back, and I'm like, why didn't I listen to this before I went? It was so fascinating. And I would be able to communicate with them on a much deeper level if I knew all of this history of E.B. Amin and his taking power and all this other stuff. But know the culture. Know, Know the people. Know even the Greek mythology, so to speak, behind their belief system so that you can effectively communicate. Notice how Paul did that. It was masterful. Paul is later on going to quote from Greek poetry. He's going to take Greek poetry, borrow it, and apply it to the God of Israel again. Paul apparently has a degree of familiarity with Greek mythology and poetry and philosophy. So I want to hear from you guys. What questions do you have? And maybe we can get the discussion going. We've got a few minutes here, extra time. How are the efforts of Paul's teaching going? What do you guys think? <laughs> how are how is his efforts going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They wanted to stone him, yeah. you said doors were being open? Doors were being opened with who? With the Gentiles. With the Gentiles, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, Crystal. I think that the uh, the character of Zeus and Hermes is like once the Gentiles really see the difference in about heaven versus the evil they worship, there's a huge difference in their yeah. character. I mean Zeus could be terrible and yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You see the difference between the the nature of our God, who's slow to anger, abounding in love, rich in mercy. Right. The the attributes of God are different from the attributes of you, of Zeus. When yeah. Studies about the one that, with the lightning bolts So i about both. Of them, yeah. But he, if a person, offered up a sacrifice to him, and he didn't deem them worthy of it. Mm-hmm. the was that he would zoom down wow. So yeah, very yeah. So the, so for those who don't know, um, if you brought a sacrifice to Zeus and Zeus didn't accept it, zap, you're dead. <laughs> and that's kind of the understanding of who Zeus was. Um, all right, good thoughts so far. Anybody else? Uh, why are the majority of Paul's Jewish listeners rejecting this message? Do you think? Because he was talking about the Savior, perhaps. Yeah, maybe they were threatened by the Gentiles coming in. And maybe there was a degree of jealousy brewing up in them they know that the Gentiles. This is our God. This is our scriptures. Perhaps. Yeah. The story about Zeus and the being like Yeah. It sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah. It does sound like Sodom and Gomorrah. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And some people I read um, say that maybe that, that myth was based on the legend, or the, the not the legend, but the uh, the biblical account of Sodom and Gomorrah, yeah. Good observation, though, yeah. It's very true. Um, what if I told you that the, the Jewish audience's rejection of the gospel is actually God-ordained? What if I told you that Paul says that? And it's actually supernatural. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Con- I'm sorry? It just didn't fit all, their that they had all their expectations. Yeah, and they always say that conflict is a misalignment of expectations. That's all conflict is. So when you have a conflict, it's two people. They expect one thing. This one expects another thing. They don't meet. <laughs> and That's what's going on here. There's a conflict. But yeah, Xavier. Uh, yeah, it says that they appointed elders, plural, Think uh, you see hmm. that as uh, a basis for, for plurality of leadership rather than one single education. Yeah, I think so. That's really wise to do, to have a plurality of elders. Um, because what do they say? Uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Is that what this saying goes? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's it's uh, it's probably unwise to have one person leading the, the congregational and spiritual matters and doctrine. Um, and we're blessed to have a. a a group of elders here, that when the problem arises, or a doctrinal question especially arises, I mean, we've navigated things in our congregation, that if we didn't have elders and didn't have the wisdom that comes with with, with them, uh, then it very well may have uh, changed the course of this congregation's history. But because we have biblical eldership, and because there they are men um, who are willing to sacrifice to do that. And, and want to honor Yeshua in that um, we navigate some, some waters that, and we get through the other side of it for sure. So I saw another hand somewhere though. Yeah, Patrick. Um, I was just thinking there's a, a great example of an application here. I've written down some of my cards. But the thing that's highlighted and proven really to be such a great example of sharing the is that Paul tailors his message to the recipient. So we see here. He used the knowledge of Jesus' attributes and communities mm-hmm. of you know, the true God's attributes. Yeah. Okay. And then you see the, 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 the synagogues, he uses scripture, right? He uses the scripture, he's like, hey, this, this society guy, he used all these things. He used to know yeah. they have spent the time. But then you know, on the other hand, he used to see him like Acts 17 Mm-hmm, uh, Marsh Hill. So, yeah. So he mentioned like, that he uses uh, some of his quotes from their Roman quotes in Paloma. Yep. Yeah, I think that's a great for to the there's, I mean, you know, there's what's this? Five to six on average every mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's like three, to, three to four. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. For those who couldn't hear Patrick, what he was saying is that Paul does a great job of tailoring the message of the gospel to the people that he's speaking to. Don't I don't want you to hear that he's compromising the gospel or watering it down. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is taking elements from their, their culture, their religion, and superimposing basically here, you've misapplied this, let me instead apply it here correctly and to the point where he's quoting Greek author, a Greek author and he's using, uh, uh, just in case you know, like we read in Acts 17 on Mars Hill, he's walking up into this group of philosophers they were sitting around and talking about existential meaning of life and all this other stuff, and Paul comes in and says, "Hey, that unknown altar, right? god, the altar to the unknown god right there. I know who that god is." And it's a very fascinating thing that he does, and, um, and then he then he goes into this disposition about uh, this exposition about the god of um, Israel. Um, but yeah, Zeus are not Zeus. Paul is very well learned, and and you know probably picture him like a PhD of of biblical studies and and philosophy. I mean, this guy is so well-learned and articulate. Um, So it's just fascinating. I love the life of Paul. Um, But yeah, any other comments or questions before we wrap up for the day? Let's close in prayer, and then we're going to do Kiddush. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Shabbat. I thank you for your word, and the the hard work that uh, these early followers put into writing down uh, the history of our movement. And may we strive every day to get back to the way they worshiped, and the way they carried out their faith. And may we leave uh, the, the misgivings and the misinformation and those traditions that are unbiblical and counter to your word. May we continue to audit those things and question those things and humbly come to you with a pure heart and with clean hands. I pray all this in the name of Yeshua. Amen.